is trying to put together the last two sermons that we've had, one last Sunday and one, of course, on uh, Christmas Eve. And those two were conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And when you put them together, of course, we are talking about the Incarnation. And so, as we just confessed in the Nicene Creed, Credo in Jesus Christ, incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. That's the good confession of the church. It isn't all that the church has to say about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The creed goes on as we have just said it. But it is the foundation. It is the start of understanding who Jesus is as he came into this world, the incarnate Son of God. That is who he was as he revealed it to be in his person. It is who the scriptures testify that he is, and it is the good confession that the church has made throughout the ages as well. Now, we've been considering the nativity readings for a number of weeks now, and so I thought that this morning we could look at the incarnation, at least in this initial reading from one of the passages that reflects on the incarnation found in Colossians chapter 1. I'm actually, just so you know, going to be basing most of the sermon on the Isaiah 59 passage, but this passage shows us the purpose for which the Son came into this world. It's a glorious passage revealing to us the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'll read from verse 13 of chapter 1 in Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and this he here is God the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's this beloved Son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the beauty of this passage. Jesus, we thank you 
for the reconciling work that you have done. Father, we thank you for this plan of redemption, for the fact that through your Son you've delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom, a glorious kingdom that is full of light. Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, you authored these words that are before us here in this text. You inspired him to write them for us, and you have illumined our hearts so that we can understand these words. Help us to deepen that today as we reflect on you. Thank you for the incarnation. In Jesus' great name, amen. All right, so as we do each year, we concluded the Lessons and Carols service, singing what I suspect for many of you, uh, or for many, if not your favorite Christmas carol, then at least one of our favorite Christmas carols is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it's a glorious hymn, and I love it, and I love how all of us at that point are rising up together to be able to sing this great hymn. And then there's this verse that I'm sure all of us love in addition to myself there that is one of the most theological in all of the Christmas hymns where it says, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. And of course, that's what we looked at on Christmas Eve, that he is the offspring of the virgin's womb. But then it continues on, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. As we sing, what we're doing there is we're rejoicing it. We are uh, we're rejoicing in that incarnation. We are proclaiming the incarnation. And we're really doing what we've been talking about throughout this. We're, we're making the good confession. When we sing that hymn together, we're making the good confession of faith in the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal Lord, the eternal Son, who took on flesh and became one of us for us. He became one of us for us. I trust that, may, well, if you were at both sermons, I hope you saw the parallel. Uh, when, when I was preaching last week and talking about the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, I talked about the fact that that makes him an outsider. He is outside of us. He's other than us. But then on Christmas Eve, when we were talking about the fact that he was born of the Virgin Mary, I talked about the fact that that makes him one of us. It makes him, in fact, an insider. He's part of the community of mankind for us and for our salvation. So today we talk about the incarnation then in particular. And throughout the history of the church, two things have been understood about the incarnation when people reflect on what this means. First, it is absolutely essential for our salvation to understand that Jesus became the God-man and to understand to some extent at least what that means. And so we must make every effort to make sense of it, to understand it, to clarify it, to believe it, to explain it, and to confess it. And the second thing is this. The incarnation is so wonderful, it's so deep, that we, the church, the people of God, will never be able to understand it fully. How God became man and how the 
two natures, the nature of God, he is fully God, the nature of man, he is fully man, how the two natures come together to form one person. And so every theologian who has ever approached the topic of the incarnation, recognizing and appreciating its significance and its importance, gets up to the point where they're getting ready to try and explain and understand what the scriptures have to say about it, and says, this is a mystery. This is a great mystery. This is a hidden mystery. This is a joyful mystery when we approach this topic. And I, and I think there's great integrity in, uh, in both of these things, both in the labor to understand and in the simple recognition that it, when it comes to describing and understanding and appreciating fully the doctrine of the Trinity that God is deeper than we. And so to understand it all is perhaps beyond our grasp humanly to get all of it fully. But today what I'd like to do is to focus on the why of the incarnation. Why did the eternal son of God become man? The church confesses this truth, right? Let's just make sure that we're completely clear. This is the truth that the church throughout the ages has confessed, that Jesus Christ is completely God and completely man. And if we trace some of the history of the various ways that's said in the creeds, we can say he's truly God and he's truly man. He's very God and he is very man. And then it gets more specific. It says, listen, he is of the same substance of the Father. We just confess that together in the Nicene Creed. We go into it even deeper. But he is of the same substance, the same essence of the Father. That's what it means to be fully God. And he is of the same substance, the same essence, the same stuff that we are made of as well. And then the truth is that these two natures come together to form one person. And this is what I've been laboring to show us over the last uh, week now, is that when we say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that we are recognizing the divinity in particular of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, comes down to the fact that he is the Son of God, God himself. And when we say and when we confess that he was born of the Virgin Mary, we are in particular focusing on the fact that he is a Son of Man, that he is fully man. He is, together then, the God-man. And he is that at his conception, which of course is what we focus on at the time of Christmas, that at his conception and at his birth, he is the God-man in every sense of both of those terms. But he is not only that at his conception and at his birth, he is that for all eternity. I remember it took me a while in my Christian walk to appreciate the fact that Jesus continues to be the God-man for all eternity, that it wasn't just a thing that he did for the sake of his time on earth and then kind of got rid of that flesh portion uh, and went back to being the eternal son of God in the way that he had always been before the incarnation, but that in fact the incarnation is for all eternity. Jesus is the God-man now forever and ever. And having confessed all of that, I think we can then say, okay, well, why? Why was it necessary? Why was it so important? Why does it have such a prominent place 
in not only the history of the church, but in the scriptures as well to understand this incarnation. So of the many places that we can turn, and a little bit later in the service, we'll just look at how a couple of passages reflect on this same idea. I think Isaiah 59 is a terrific place for us to go and part to be able to understand the incarnation as we approach it from the Old Testament. And so what I'd like you to do is whether in your Bibles or whether uh, in the bulletins, because of course it was printed all there for our confession this morning, turn to that section of Isaiah 59 as we kind of work through this. It shows us the necessity, the need for the incarnation, and then prepares us for it as well. So this passage, as, uh, as Jack ably pointed out, and as was the purpose of structuring it this way for the confession of sin, it reveals the darkness that characterizes not just an individual in rebellion against God, but an entire world in rebellion against God. Isaiah exposes the darkness of the world, the darkness of humanity, the darkness of our own hearts and thoughts and deeds in a way that, I, I mean, I don't know if you were listening carefully as those things were read and as we confessed them, but they are decidedly uncomfortable. They're just not pleasant things to think about. It's not pleasant to speak that way of ourselves or to think that way of ourselves. And yet there's a clarity here that is actually helpful to us, even though it is unsettling. There's a darkness in the passage. There's a darkness in this world. Uh, verse 9 puts it this way. We hope for light and behold darkness. Or if you take it over to uh, chapter 60 and verse 2 of chapter 60, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. And in this passage, there's no, there's no ambiguity as to the reason for the darkness. You're not left wondering, well, why is the world dark at this point? Is there something going on that we don't understand? To use language from a couple of sermons back and to use this language that is found in our confessions as well. The darkness exists because mankind is in the estate of sin and the estate of misery. Again, the, the passage could not be clearer in verse 2, right, as the passage begins in Isaiah 59. It says, but your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God, and your sin has hid his face from you so that he does not hear. And then we confessed it together in verse 12 of the passage. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Obviously, there's a big part of us, ever since our first parents, that shamefully would like to hide our iniquities, that would like to somehow dress them up, cover them up, and pretend that they're not so bad. We would prefer not to look at those things because looking at those things is, as I said, decidedly unsettling, and yet, nevertheless, there it is. 
as clearly as it could be said, it's an examination of our hearts. The reality is this, that we sin ourselves. We ourselves commit sins. And we don't just commit them in isolation from other people who are around us. When we sin, we sin against God in the first place, but we also sin against one another. And in addition to that, in addition to being a sinner who sins against other people, we are people who are also sinned against. We are those who have seen other people's sins against ourselves. And that's the picture that is here in Isaiah. It's a full-blown picture. It's not just that you individually are a sinner and that's the problem. It's that we collectively are sinners and therefore we end up biting and devouring not only ourselves, but we end up doing that to one another as well. So this, if you will, this estate of sin yields the misery in all of its facets, and they're described for us here just to pick out a few. There are so many that it's not, you know, we're not able to look at all of them, but it's the moaning. The misery is characterized in the, in the simple word to moan. We moan in this world. We lack peace. We lack truth. We lack justice in this world. And, and I appreciate the way that as, as it works its way through there, we may long for those things. We have a sense of those things. We, we have a sense, perhaps, of what justice would be like, what peace would be like, what it would be like if all things could be spoken in truth. We long for them. We even hope for them. But here's the testimony. They are far from us. Do what we will as humanity. Hope what we will as humanity. Elect whom we will as humanity and they will still remain far from us. And the dismaying part of this is that there's just no human solution to the problem. It's a human-created problem. We are squarely in the middle of the problem, squarely part of the problem, and there is no human solution to it. And this is what God makes clear in his testimony as he evaluates all of this in verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. It displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. In other words, nobody can do anything about it. Humanly speaking, it is an impossible situation. It's a vicious cycle. We just keep ending up in a place that is hopeless. God is all holiness and goodness and righteousness and justice and truth and glory and love and mercy. And we are all the opposite of those things. That's who he is. Flip them over and that's who we are. And there seems to be no way to bridge that chasm that exists. God is justly displeased, and we are justly condemned as a result of it. Now, let me give you just one quick picture of this from another angle. The other angle that I'd like to, to look at this is to, to realize that, that Job, in his struggles, says something very similar to this. 
We're looking at this passage and we see the Lord, if you will, lament that there's no man, that there's no one to intercede. He's lamenting that in a way that helps to expose the fact that there's no one there who can fill in the gap. Job looks at it from a different angle. He looks at a world that's full of the exact same things and personalized for him that we're seeing here in Isaiah, the misery of this world. And here's then what Job has to say about this, reflecting on whether or not he can bring this to God. He says, for he, this is Job 9, by the way, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. What Job is doing is Job is looking at the the situation from the perspective of a man. God looks at it and says, there's no man to intercede. Job looks at it and says, there's no arbiter. There's no way to have somebody who can put one hand on me, one hand on God and resolve and can reconcile us together. God is looking for someone to intercede. Job is looking for someone to mediate. With men, this is a Gordian knot. It's an unresolvable conundrum. It's an inescapable tragedy. In other words, with men, it is impossible. It's impossible, the situation. But with God, as the angel said, as Jesus himself said, but with God, all things are possible. Or to put it in the language with which Isaiah started this chapter, Isaiah 59, starting in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save. You may be falling off a cliff and The Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot grab you and pull you from that particular place. The Lord's hand is not too short. And of course, the resolution that God provides is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. What is needed in Isaiah and for Job as well is someone to come between God and man. Someone who can stand in that place with one hand on man and one hand on God and mediate. Who can resolve a conflict. Who can reconcile that conflict. And since no mere man can do this, God himself takes up that position. And that's what we see here described for us in the rest of Isaiah 59 and going into 60. Now, we won't look at all of this in Isaiah, but just by way of reminder, preceding the passage that we're reading now, that one who will be coming is identified as a servant. A servant will be coming into the world, and that servant will suffer because of this very gap that exists right here to overcome the separation between God and man. But in Isaiah 59 and then into 60, this servant is not merely seen as a servant, but this servant comes into the world as a conquering warrior who is robed in the garments of warfare, who is prepared for battle. The servant comes in in this attire, this 
warfare attire, and, and you see the purpose of this servant coming, or this warrior coming into the world. Then his own arm, verse 16, he saw that there was no man, wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation. Why did this one come into the world clothed in this armor of God to be able to do battle? Answer, for our salvation. That's why he came into the world. He came to save, or to look at it in verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. How does the salvation take place? The salvation takes place when God himself clothes himself in the clothes of a warrior and comes as the redeemer to deliver and save the people. Verse 21 makes it even more personal and more specific, though it's a little bit harder for us in looking at it to make sense of it. In verse 21, we read this, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. Uh, so the Lord is saying to this warrior who's coming, I've got a covenant with these people right here. The problem is, warrior, that they have broken this covenant. As for you, my spirit is upon you. That's the language, just so you recall it. My spirit being upon you. It's the same language that comes in the next chapter, beginning of 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news. So when it says here that the, my spirit is upon you, you goes to singular here. My spirit is upon you. In other words, you are the one with whom I am now going to be in covenant for the sake of these others who have broken covenant with me in order to bring them back. You, in other words, are going to be this covenant mediator on my behalf. Isaiah is saying, we need Christ. We need the anointed one. We need the Messiah to come and intercede and mediate this covenant. So then what you've got here in this passage is that in the darkness of a corner with an impossible conundrum, the incarnation is revealed. The incarnation is spoken of here and it is anticipated in a way that people like Simeon and Anna who are found in the temple are waiting for this. They've got enough understanding from Scripture that they're waiting to see this one who is to come. And it becomes enacted in the womb of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit birthed in Bethlehem. Now, I don't know if you caught this. I don't know if it resonates with you the same way that it resonates with me. But when I read Isaiah 60, and I know the stories of the nativity, how beautiful do they lay up against one another? I read uh, verse 2 for us about the darkness covering the land. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. The glory and the light that the shepherds experienced them is followed by. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The picture here is of, of the magi and of others who begin streaming towards Christ. And as they come from afar, your sons shall come from afar, verse 4. They shall thrill, they shall exalt a multitude of camels. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They bring good news, good news of the praise of the Lord. 
This is the picture here of what is taking place in a miniature in just the beginning stages of it, but what is taking place in Bethlehem as people come to see that which has taken place, that which they have heard, that which was anticipated here in Isaiah. God is beginning the work in Bethlehem of beautifying his beautiful house with all of the nations coming in. That's how it gets beautiful, right? That was the last thing that we read. And I will beautify my beautiful house, and that starts in Bethlehem. That's where I start to beautify it. That's where the people start coming in to see the glory of the Lord in the incarnate Son of God. This, then, is what is celebrated throughout Scripture. Look, for example, at the front of your bulletin, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Job, you're, you're looking for a mediator. You're looking for one who can stand between you and God and intercede on your behalf. He's here. He's the one. This is, this is, this is the exact same language, by the way, uh, as you translate the Hebrew and the Greek. It's the same idea. It's the mediator, the one who will stand in that place. In Colossians, we already read the passage. In him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and then to reconcile us in his body of flesh. Philippians 2 is also on the front of your bulletin. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of man. And you'll forgive me for just kind of going through these rich passages quickly. The point is simply to show us the pervasiveness of the fact that when he comes as the mediator of the covenant, he comes as the God-man. Hebrews 2 says it like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, become man and take on flesh? For that reason. He had to be made like us in order to satisfy the justice of God. And he becomes, if we looked at the rest of Hebrews, the mediator of the new covenant because he always lives to make intercession for us. I know it's hard uh, to hear uh, older language describing these things, particularly in this context when you're not reading it as well. But I have to read a section from the Institutes of John Calvin here, if you'll allow me, where he speaks of this exact same thing. So he's speaking of Christ, he's speaking of the mediator, and he writes this. His task was to so restore us to God's grace as to make of the children of men children of God, of the heirs of Gehenna, which is to say the heirs of hell, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this had not the self-same Son of God become the Son of Man? 
and had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his, what is ours, what is ours, ours is a fleshly nature, ours is being of the flesh. He took what is ours being of the flesh and then ultimately took what is ours, i.e. on the cross, he took the burden of our sins upon himself, took what is ours in order to impart what is his to us and to make what was his by nature what is his by nature? Being beloved of the Father, being the eternal Son of God, adopted or in the family of God. To take what is his by nature, make that ours by grace. Therefore, relying on this pledge, we trust that we are sons of God. For God's natural Son fashioned for himself a body from our body, flesh from our flesh, bones from our bones, that he might be one with us. Ungrudgingly, he took our nature upon himself to impart to us what was his and to become both son of God and son of man in common with us. That's what he did. He, he donned himself with flesh so that he could come and save and deliver we who were in the flesh. He must be the God-man for us and for our salvation. And as the God-man, he does the work of saving us. This, we, we read this verse from Colossians. Think about this verse now in light of Isaiah 59. Just this is, this is 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what the first part of Isaiah 59 described for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the redeemer will come to Zion in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins the problem in other words is dealt with if you, if you want to take all of Isaiah 59 and summarize it in two verses that's it right there what Christ has done delivered us out of the domain of darkness there's no hope without the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He had to be man because he had to die for us in the weakness of human flesh. He had to be God because he had to conquer that same death. And the one who had the power of death had to be conquered as well. And as the God-man, he must obey where we fail to secure our adoption as sons and daughters of God in himself. He is thus able to save us as the incarnate son, to be the one who can put his hand on both God and man, to mediate, to come between, to intercede for us on our behalf. And so as we kind of come now to the end of this, the, the same question with which we started comes back into the foreground. The simple question is this. Do you believe? Do you believe that? Do you believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and made man? Do you believe that? Paul puts it this way at the end of that Colossians section. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh 
by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if. If. That's what's happened. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. If you continue in the faith, which is simply to say, if you continue in the belief, in the confession, that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God come into this world. Time of the year, our culture, the people around us saying, just believe. Believe anything, just believe. The Bible says no, believe in. Jesus said to Martha at the death of Lazarus, whoever believes in me will live in me. And then he turned to her and said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, may God grant us the grace to believe and to grow into that belief and to hold on to that hope and that belief that we've been gifted. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, again, our thanks to you for the faith that you have given to us. It is not our work. It is not of ourselves. Left to ourselves, our minds would be darkened like the rest of us. But by your grace, by your mercy, by your working in our hearts, you have granted to us the ability to hear the proclamation of the gospel. We have heard it even this morning in your word despite the weaknesses of your servant. And Lord, we pray that as a church, you would help us to believe, that we would not put ourselves above others as somehow having figured it out, but instead we would in humility recognize that we have been granted the gift of faith and that having been granted it, we pray that you would enable us to do all that we can to hold it, to nurture it by your power, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Lord, help us to believe in you. Increase the faith that you have given to us in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing in response, What Child Is This? 213.
Now, my brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. And all God's people say, amen.